0: Okay, all right. I have to give you a little, um, uh, this sermon starts out with a um, confession that when I did this at my other church, I had been there like seven years. So it wasn't really that shocking to them, because here's kind of how I do preaching. Um, The Bible basically tells me that your heart is about as bad as mine. That's basically what it says, that all of our hearts are desperately wicked, so much so that we can't even know how desperately wicked our own heart is because part of its desperate wickedness is its self-deluding power so that we're oblivious to the depths of our own depravity. Hence why we need revelation and the man Jesus Christ who came to tell us about it. Right? So this is the way that this works. I go, look at that. Isn't that disgusting? Guess what? You've got it too. Let's go to Jesus. That's kind of how this whole preaching thing works. So you're going to get a… I'm going to make a little admission this morning to start off with. And just, you know, this is why I'm doing it, not to just like make it about myself. Okay, so there it is. Okay, so I have—you're going to meet my mom in a few months, okay? And you'll, then when she comes, that's when you'll say, that explains a lot. But, <laughs> um, but I have a really great mom. My mom is from Rome. She's full-blooded Italian. That explains a lot, right? And um, she like— um, So in my last church, I used to go around to the Sunday schools, and I say, listen, um, if you have any complaint, let me know. Give me some feedback, because listen, you need to understand. Uh, I know you're not supposed to complain in the South, but I have an Italian mama. I've been worshipped since the day I was born. You cannot hurt my feelings. My self-esteem is unassailable. So just tell me, because it'll help, right? And then people just take a complaint up a storm. So... That's the kind of—but also, my immigrant mom did what a lot of immigrants in her generation did. She came to America. She got a college education. She made bottle caps nights until she could finish her college education and knew English well enough to teach in the public school. She taught public school for 40 years, and she she saved like an immigrant. So even though my mom didn't start a Fortune 500 company, when my dad passed away, um, her net worth was substantial, and she was— crushed. If you've ever watched a parent with a 30-plus year happy marriage end immediately through a car accident, you'll know what I'm talking about. You know, a quarter of their body weight goes away in a month, and they just look 20 years older, and a certain percentage of them come out of it. They, they pull up on the thing at some point, and some of them don't. And so there was a real hard about a year and a half. Every time I talked to her, it was about it was about my dad and about, st- I mean, about her reinterpreting all that. And, um, and it was, it was real—my real t- mom and I have talked about this, okay? So I'm not telling you something we haven't sat across the coffee table on. And there were a couple times during that year and a half where, where honestly— okay, honestly, I wondered if I'd just rather have the money. Now, that's not an impulse that you want to go, oh yeah, let's go with that. Let's, let's, let's work that out. What, I, what would I do with it, you know? But, but here's the thing. It's coming up out of this black heart, okay, that Christ has not yet completely redeemed. And listen, I'm a pastor. It's not—not not only am I a Christian and I want to be fully redeemed in my heart, I'm a pastor. Like, my livelihood comes from general success in this area, okay? But, st- but still, still, these kinds of things grow up what is What comes out of this parable of Jesus in the the second half of Luke 15, where he focuses in on this older brother who has come to love the father's stuff more than the father, that is a syndrome of the human heart. And it is a syndrome so commonly found in confessing Christians in churches among religious people that Jesus spent so much effort talking about it in the Bible. I mean, have you ever wondered why does Jesus seem so caustic? Why is he so tough on religious people? You know, not like us, but you know, like some other religious people. <laughs> but you see, like, all, and all, it's not just Jesus. Paul is like that. The Old Testament is like that. I mean, think about the book of Jonah. How is God loving to Jonah chapter for remember my candid? By being tough on him. God is extremely tough on religious people. Why? Because this syndrome, this older brother syndrome, this, "I like the things I'm getting more than the thing itself," is the creeping poison we will all struggle with the rest of our Christian lives. It is the heart of the matter. And listen, you might go, oh, wanting your mom's stuff more than her, that's kind of bad. Okay, but that same dynamic is the dynamic that on the day when you wake up and you just don't have any faith that day. You know what I'm talking about? You wake up, you just don't have any faith that day. You just don't have a sense that the living God is present and active. You're a Christian. You're going with that conclusion at least till nightfall, okay? But you don't sense it in here. There's no living faith, right? Right? And, you, and so you comfort yourself by saying, well, you know, it's, it's a good life. So even if I'm wrong, even if the faith— I can get through the day knowing that being a Christian is a good life. That's the same thing. That's saying, well, look, the blessed, it's, a, it's kind of a blessed life. It's a good, profitable, happy life, even if the God thing isn't even real. That's the same dynamic. Comforting yourself with a blessing instead of with a blesser, right? Or, um— if you if if you if you if you just don't have any sense of the glory of God, you read about God, you read your and you're like, "What? I don't get a sense of God, but when I'm reading the Bible, but you go, "But I know that if I live out this biblical wisdom, I'm going to live a really wise life, and that wise life is going to be really good for me and for my family." Right? And you know, evangelical pulpits are full of that kind of sermon where the where the pastor gets up and says, We might get to Jesus at the end of my message for a couple sentences, but let me give you twelve principles about a happier marriage, mainly based on psychological books that cost more than fifty dollars, fifteen dollars still on hardcover at the local bookstore. That you could get a summary on on any blog in the blogosphere. That's what the sermon's why. Because the idea is, is you're not really going to seek to go through something as violent as playing with Jesus to tear our, out your sinful heart and to be fully redeemed by the Spirit, throw away every other bet you have but your bet on the risen Christ so that there's nothing God couldn't ask of you to be fully and completely remade by Christ. Even we pastors know that if we want to keep you here, we've got to keep you betting on some other things that we can mediate so you'll come and hear me. And friends, all of this— are there just modern versions of older brother syndrome. They're just ways to be religious and get stuff out of being religious, even if the God who's talked about in the religion isn't even there. So that we can all be functionally atheists, but we work on this God myth that has all these nice wisdom principles that if we all live out, we'll be better than the bad people who don't. And I am functioning from the presumption that churches are filled with these people. You know why? Because my house is filled with these people. I am these people, some days. And Jesus tells the story to help us with that. He wants to help us see that we are older brothers, But God loves us as older brothers, and he wants to do something with us as a loving father who comes out and pleads with that older brother and invites him back into the real good thing, which is the joy of the father in the party, not the waiting for the benefits after his death. When you don't even believe in him anymore, he's gone, but you got some of the blessings that really are just you kind of being a good manager. But the God myth is good for your kids, isn't it? That's how so many of us Christians really live. Some of us all the time. Some of us some of the time. And the the thing is, one of the reasons this parable is so important is it really plays out the two basic ways people try to find happiness. Right? Okay, it's on... There's two basic ways people try to find happiness that are not the gospel. One is the self-discovery model, right? That's the younger brother, right? I'm going to get out there, and then there's— but there's another way of seeking happiness that's not any more Christian. That's the moral conformity model. I'm going to obey all the rules, learn the rules really well, find a way to use them to my advantage so that I can get success through being good. Okay? Those are two different ways. So you get, you know, you got your first child who's all like, likes the parents and does what they're told so they can get a car earlier. Right? And then you've got the younger child that just, whoo, she does whatever she wants and neither one of them necessarily have better, have better internal loves than the other one. They just are going with different plans on how to get where they want to go. Right? And so you've got, you know, your younger brother people they're irreligious, um, and the, the older brother, he's religious, okay? The other person, they're, they're self-centered. The other person is self-righteous. One knows they need freedom. If they're, You know, you, you know these people, right? These people are us people, right? That well, if I'm really going to be happy, I need to be free. I need to be able to do whatever. I can't make any— These are the people who say, yeah, we're going to go out to dinner together in two hours, but let's not decide where yet because, well, we have cell phones. Because who knows what could happen? I mean— A whole nother restaurant from Mars that we don't know about could drop out of space. And we don't want to have decided we're going to P.F. Chang's. Right? Like, we can't decide. We have to leave our options open. Right? The other other person is looking for community acceptance. He makes commitments because those commitments position him better socially. Right? And there's all the—I've already preached too long. So there's already— There's all these differences, but they're just different kinds of self-centered, self-focuses of self-idolatry towards happiness that we manage. They're both equally idolatrous. They're they're different plans, but neither one of them are the gospel, right? So this morning, fairly quickly, I want to ask five questions about this. Okay, ready? One— Why does Jesus treat older brother syndrome as more dangerous than younger brother system? Younger brother syndrome, because he does. Two, what are the danger—the fallout dangers of older brother syndrome? That's going to be really fast, by the way. Three, how do I identify older brother syndrome in me? We're going to play, you might be a redneck except with older brother syndrome. That's going to be fun. And then, (laughs) what's the real difference between older brother syndrome and Christian faith, and what's the real remedy I need? Okay, so first— Jesus treats older brother syndrome as more dangerous than younger brother syndrome. It's older brother syndrome, and that's the one that we are the most susceptible to. Jesus is saying is—he's saying it implicitly now in this parable, but he's saying it's more dangerous. Now, how do I get that, right? Because he doesn't say that in Luke 15. Jesus doesn't say, I just want you to know, this whole older brother theme I've got in the second half of the parable, this is the key one, but think about it. Think about the end of the, what is happening at the end of the parable. The storyline with the younger brother, is that still open or is it resolved? It's resolved, right? He's in the father's house. He's having a party. He's come back. He has the ring. He has the robe. He's going to be okay. He's back, okay? And hopefully he's even maybe learned his lesson. We'll see, right? Now, the second drama line with the older brother, is that open or is that one closed? Has that resolved or is it open? It's open, right? So if you, if Jesus tells a story and then you walk away, what is he trying to leave in your mind? He left you with a cliffhanger. That was the whole point. You're supposed to go away thinking about the cliffhanger. You're supposed to be thinking about the fact that the old, when you walked away, the older brother was the one that was in danger. He was still on the farm, but he was the one that was in danger. We don't know what happened to the older brother. We don't know what he's going to do, and therefore we can know that the story is about the older brother, and that leaving open what he does means— the choices are really getting backloaded on you, isn't it? Because the question isn't, what is the older brother in story the story going to do? The question is, hey, Pharisees and religious people and people who have older brother syndrome, what are you going to do? Right? This—you—it's like a choose-your-own-adventure book. <laughs> you know how—or or you know how you have DVDs now where you can, like, look at the alternate endings? All right, it's up to you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're the older brother. You tell me how this ends. That's what he's saying, right? Now, here's a question. But why—why why does he focus on older brother syndrome? I mean, he, he, you know, in his crowd, he had prostitutes and tax collectors. I mean, he had some— He had some people who had racked up some pretty good sin balances, you know what I'm saying? So why would he focus on the religious people? I mean, aren't the younger brother syndrome people, aren't they just as bad? And here's why I think the difference is. They're both equally sinful, I think, generally speaking, because they're both self-seeking idolatries, right? They're both idolatry. They're both relatively equally sinful. Here's the thing. They're not both equally obvious, right? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if you live like the, the younger brother lived, how, what's going to happen? <laughs> right? It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. Okay? And now, you might be sitting there being like, thanks, Nick, because it took me like two decades to figure that out. Yeah, okay. And some people never figure it out. I'll grant you that. But generally speaking, if you just live— crazy talk like the younger brother did, your life implodes, okay? Your life implodes, okay? Not true with older brother syndrome. The more ingrained older brother syndrome gets in our hearts, the more successful we are. In a lot of ways, the better our life goes. And so older brother syndrome has this sneaking way of taking hold of us, making us just as idolatrous, just as non-Christian— as younger brother syndromes, but we can sit in church, we can become more successful, we can not implode our family in debt, we can raise decently behaved kids, we can blah 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 blah. We look really Christian, we look really successful, and we are still really idolaters. And uh, what Jesus is facing here is he's saying, look, you need to recognize that older brother syndrome is considerably more dangerous because it is not obvious. Right? Do you notice—okay, for example, medically, we don't have a screening procedure for cholera, right? We don't have a screening test for cholera. Why not? Why wouldn't we have a screening test for cholera? Well, because cholera kills you in 4 to 12 hours. It's quick. Does that mean you don't go, oh, let's screen this person for cholera. They're almost dead already. Get them some fluids, okay? There's no need for a screening anything because the disease works so fast that it becomes obvious. Right? And so there's lots of diseases we don't have screening procedures for because they're obvious. Now, HIV-AIDS isn't like that, is it? It cooks for years. It can wreck all kinds of things. It can affect all kinds of people, and it can do so pretty much beneath the surface. It can wreak all kinds of havoc, and everybody looks healthy. Everybody's going on their lives. Everything's going fine. And so what Jesus, I think, is trying to do with all— and not just in Luke 15, but in all the places he comes after religion— Religious people. He is trying to get us an s- internal screening process because this is, this is the weed we have to focus on. This is the thing we have to keep plucking. The older brother syndrome, it's obvious. You blow up at your wife, you know you blow up at your wife. You do the right thing for the wrong reason and it just looks like you're being the right guy. Okay. Okay. Why did I put this in my pocket? So number two, the dangerous results of odor, of thinking older brother syndrome is Christianity. Okay, I'm gonna have to go through this kind of fast. Am I already going kind of fast? Yeah. I'm from the south. We talk fast. <laughs> Sorry, um, I have an Italian mom. We talk fast and interrupt people. Okay, so. Um, here are some of the fallouts, and this is what happens if you if you're living older brother syndrome, but you think it's Christianity. This is what is this is what this kind of faith is going to produce. One, it's going to produce behavioral faults, Here's what's going to happen: um, you're going to start to exhibit entitlement behaviors, right? Because because you're being a good person, you're following the rules, and y- you deserve blessing. You have rights. You're paying taxes. You're a citizen. You have some things coming to you, including blessings and a good life. And so you're going to start to feel entitled. You're not going to feel like a wretched, horrifyingly awful sinner that was saved absolutely by grace, deserves nothing, should get nothing. Everything you get is because God freely wants to because he's generous. That's not how you're going to feel. Right? You're a team player. You ought to get something. So you'll start to exhibit entitlement behaviors. Now, some of that will just start with stuff that's not openly immoral. It'll just be self-blessing. So you'll just— you'll just start to get a little angry at God down in here somewhere. You know, I, you know what? we should be able to afford a new car because, man, we've been tithing. You know, we serve God. We do the right thing. I stay with my family. You know, wh- why can't we make ends meet, right? I, I should be blessed, right? We start thinking like that. It's one of the, it's one of the reasons why I think um, the, you know, Americans and American Christians, almost as much as everybody else, are sinking in consumer debt. Right? Now the religious version is, God should be blessing me. The secular version is, you deserve this. Like, my intern opened this chocolate this week, Dove chocolate, which is apparently only for women, because they could say as the saying inside, you go, girl, you deserve this. (laughs) Okay. How do you deserve a piece of chocolate? I mean, has anybody worked out the moral philosophy of that? What are you talking about? Did you like, did you contract with the Dove Company that you would work this much and they would give you a chocolate? I mean, no. You don't deserve a chocolate. You're going to eat a chocolate because you want to, because it tastes good. And if by grace you have the money to buy chocolate and eat it, well, fantastic. Eat some chocolate in moderation as long as it's dark chocolate has has antioxidants or whatever. Dark chocolate is not as good as milk chocolate. <laughs> Boom! That's right! That was an opinion. That was an opinion. That was not ex-cathedral. Okay, so, little joke for ex-Catholics. Um, so, where are we? The, the point is, the point is we start, we start self-blessing ourselves. At first, it's just I deserve this, so I'm gonna take it. It's not explicit. But what happens later on is it gets explicitly immoral and you don't care anymore. Remember the Ted Haggard gig? Remember that? Black eye and evangelicalism. Remember Ted Haggard, big mega church pastor? He was the president of the evangelical, like, I forget what it's called. Not evangelical theologics, but this like National Association of Evangelicals. He's the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, and he's like out doing drugs and strange things with men and stuff. And we're like, dude, what the heck? But, you know what? There was a study put out by the University of Washington that, that talked about the propensity of extreme level leaders and immorality, even if they are especially, especially if they're leading morality-based movements, right? Like, have you ever wondered, how can a man as great as, as Martin Luther King Jr. have mistresses on the side? Like, how does—how does that even work? Like, how— how come pastors of churches at a rate of something like 40% are involved in porn or adultery or something like that? That's insane. Here's how it works. In 97% of your life, you're being the good guy. You're always spending the energy doing the right thing, doing the right thing, doing the right thing, being the good guy, being the guy out front. Being the so over time, I, I deserve this. Yeah, I shouldn't be looking at these pictures, on my but you know, I'm this all the time. I'm a good dad. I'm there at bath time. I help with dinner. I put away the dishes. You know, I deserve, I deserve a little bit. And after a while, whether or not the Bible explicitly calls this sin doesn't matter anymore. It starts out with a new large arbor fly fishing reel that I just deserve, that I don't have budgeted money for, that I've saved so I could buy the thing but I just deserve it, so I'm going to whip out my credit card, and I'm going to buy it. It's only $125, and I deserve it. It starts like that, but it ends with anything, right? The second is emotional follow, and that is that because the motivations of the older brother are fear and pride, fear and pride, fear and pride, everything's motivated out of fear and pride. There's no joy. There is no joy-producing principle that is strong enough to drive a Jesus-focused life that involves suffering, right? The Jesus-focused—yeah, is, is Christianity the good life? Well, in a lot of ways, it is. There's a lot of sort of clean living, and that works out well. But there's also a lot of self-inflicted suffering that comes from following the Savior who said, if they called the captain of the house the devil, what do you think they're going to call you, Right? Christianity involves suffering. And you need this firehouse engine of joy in order to face suffering and count it all joy. To say, like Paul, these light and momentary afflictions, pfft, not worth comparing with the glory that will happen when I see Christ face to face, right? It's in 2 Corinthians. He said—and he saying in 1 Corinthians 1? We were facing suffering that made us feel the sentence of death emotionally. But he could say later he reflected on it. it was light and momentary. Late and momentary sufferings. Shipwrecked at sea, beaten half to death, late and momentary sufferings. What kind of joy is necessary for that? You cannot get that kind of motivation out of fear and pride. You can't. So if you are a Christian because you're afraid of going to hell and because you like being better than other people, when the time comes the, the, that joy is necessary to face peer pressure in high school or not sleep with your secretary or whatever, it's just not there. Instead of this joy pouring forth from your heart with a desire to live as beautifully as Christ lived, to love the truth like Christ loved the truth, to be honorable like Christ is honorable, you're going to say, there is a hole in my heart that my secretary can fill. That's what you're going to say. There is this emotional thought. There's nothing under the veneer, and so there's no power. The power of Christianity is not self-righteousness. The power of Christianity is joy in loving the risen Christ who is beautiful and good and glorious and great. Um, and third is that we get delusional martyr complexes. You know, this, what, does the younger, what does the older brother say? I've been slaving for you. I've been slaving for you. You know, we talk, you know, we have our kids pick up their own room that they messed up, and what do they say? some modern equivalent of, I've been slaving for you, right? And you're like, you have a room. You have a room. Like, what do you want from me? You get, we get this sort of modern complex that we get, and so when we do, we get resentful towards God because I wish he'd come and just do his ministry or whatever. He should be doing this. And now I have to do it. and Why should I have to do it? Nobody else is doing it, right? And you know how there's that whole uh, 10% or 20%, 80% rule where 20% of the people do most of the work and 80% do the others? Now, some of those people, 20% who are doing all the work, they're doing it out of joy. A good portion of them, hopefully. There's some people who just can't let something die because they're Jesus Christ incarnate and they just won't go home and hang out with their wife. And they need to let somebody, something die so that the 80% that does nothing can go... We either have a nursery with volunteers in it, because my kid, I don't like having them in the— and we go, great, what week would you like? (laughs) And and the martyr complex will eventually evoke the behavior follow and the emotional follow And then you have—then the result of that, of course, as I've already said, are these missed gut checks. You, uh, these, these major gut checks will come and you'll miss them. You'll be good all the time. 95% of your life, you'll be a good, upstanding, moral person. And then these big gut checks will come and you'll miss them and you'll go, why did I just miss that gut check? Here's why. Because you exceeded your motivational level. Your motivation to be good out of pride and fear was exceeded by that situation. For example, Tim Keller tells a story about um, talking with a Harvest, Harvard Business School person. This is an MBA teacher. And Essentially, the curriculum in in the Harvard MBA in this particular class was you need to be honest as a business person, because if you're honest as a business person, your employees will have a raise in morale because they'll see themselves as the white horse company. And if you lie and do stuff bad, you'll go to jail or you'll get a black eye in the media or whatever. And so your company will take a big hit because, right, like BP right now, right? Cut corners, buddy. You're not going to recover from this, right? That's what happens. So that's why, you, that's why you're honest. Well, what are those motivations? Pride and fear, right? Pride and fear. Instill pride in your company and fear of negative consequences. Well, here, What happens when a situation comes up in which if you are dishonest, in which the, the price you're going to pay for honesty you can calculate is higher than the benefit you can gain if you're dishonest? What are you going to lie? It's a calculus, you see of you're honest as long as you know it's going to work out in the end. You still have faith that it'll work out in the end, but when something big enough comes along where you lose your faith in the benefits of being honest, you'll pitch it. And so when the event hits the roof of your motivation, when it exceeds that as a thing, and you no longer have enough faith and through fear and pride to do the right thing because of the benefits it'll get you, and you're not being honest because honesty is beautiful, right, truthful, and good, and what Jesus does. A lie will come out of your mouth. And, and then you'll go, well, I wasn't brought up like this, or my church doesn't teach that you should act like this, or this isn't the kind of person I am. No, it's exactly the kind of person you are. You just hit the roof of your calculus, that's all. And then there's, of course, community fallout, in that if we have a certain threshold of people in this community of faith that live like older brothers— You know what's going to happen? Nobody's going to come in and we're going to run a bunch of people off. That's what's going to happen practically in the body of Christ. People are going to come in here and they're not going to sense this intertwined love of moral seriousness and deep graciousness. They're not going to see that. They're not going to see that in the cross, God was amazingly morally serious and yet amazingly and equally merciful and gracious. And that intertwined is this deep, seriousness about living in a good, true, and beautiful way in God's world as he created the way Jesus showed us, a great, loving moral seriousness wrapped up with an equally large graciousness, what they're going to see is self-righteousness. And so people, a lot of people here will say, like for example, our teenager, our teenager will grow up, and they'll hear about how, you know, how bad those modernist liberal churches are, and blah, blah, blah and how, you know, we're the good people, and so on. And then they'll go off to college and find out those people are just as nice as us, Right? So they're going to find, and they're going to come back, and then they're going to say, you know, I went out there after those out. They seem just as nice as y'all. And then we get mad at them for thinking that, right? And then they take a 20-year break from Christian faith. That's what they do, right? That, and that was because we were playing the older brother syndrome thing. We weren't saying, look, you need to, we are following Jesus. That's what we're doing here, okay? We're, it's not about how bad other people are, how good we are. The church is for bad people. We're here because we're bad people, and Jesus is redeeming us as bad people, and we invite as many people as possible. That's how this works, okay? And nobody will come in, right? Who's going to come and want to be part of the household of the older brother? Oh, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Can you imagine how glad the servant was? Remember the servant said, the older brother's like, what's going on in the house? And The servant's like, your brother's home and your dad's so happy, and we're having a party? And can you just imagine, and then this guy blows up. And can you imagine the servant goes, dude, I'm so glad I'm not his servant. I'm so glad I'm this guy's servant. Who wants to be part of the older brother? Nobody, right? So will we be—people wonder why churches are often so evangelistically ineffective. It is not for lack of programmatic things. It is for lack of Jesus-centered vitality and a church full of older brothers. And then we wonder why nobody wants to be like that. Well, guess what? Being a younger brother is more fun. <laughs> it's more fun. So they're going to be on the self-whatever track for a while, and then there's lots of other ways to be self-righteous where you can still have more fun than, than stuffy Christians. Okay, so how do we identify older brother syndrome? Okay, so this is going to be a checklist. We're going to go through this kind of fast, okay? But essentially, all, all these questions are getting at are, is there some way in which—because so, here's the thing, here's my belief. I believe that everyone here, myself, all of us, are, are in per, uh, some percentage all, on this track, okay? So even if your life is pretty vibrantly Christian, I mean, Jesus is really working it in you. Um, you might be one or two percent older brother, right? I think most of us are somewhere between 20 and 80 percent. That's what I think. I think most people in this room are somewhere between 20 and 80 percent functioning older brother syndrome, the rest on gospel-centered whatever, okay? So the question is, how much, and how do we get that out? Okay, so here are some diagnostic signs that in some way you have made yourself Savior, Lord, or Judge, instead of Christ. Okay, so here they are. If you believe God has underblessed you, you might have older brother syndrome. If there's a limit to what God could ask of you, you might have older brother syndrome. If the vast majority of the people in your life are good people, you might have older brother syndrome. If you don't have much sympathy for people who wreck their lives, you might have older brother syndrome. If you've ever made a deal with God before you were in trouble, you might have older brother syndrome. If when you do rarely get upset, you get really mad and blow up, you might have one. If you dislike people who are more fun than you, I really struggle with that one. I honestly, I really struggle with that one. If you don't do the—if you don't do the good that doesn't get you anything. You might have older brother syndrome. If you don't do the—oh, that's the same one. If when life goes wrong, instead of feeling sad, you get angry or bitter. If you believe in this statement, if you live a good life, you should get a good life. Or the Christian um, version—oh, sorry, not the non-Christian version. If you live a good life, you deserve to be happy. Anybody believe that, really? You might not say you believe it. If when you fail morally, you feel personally worthless, you might have older brother syndrome. If you feel the responsibility to get offended at people who sin or act in certain ways, you might have older brother syndrome. If personal criticism doesn't just hurt a little, it devastates you personally, you might have older brother syndrome. If you feel a constant irresolvable guilt or foreboding about past failures— you might have older brother syndrome, if you're a Christian but not really sure God likes you or accepts you. Because see, the word love means so little and is so vague that we go, oh, I guess I feel God loves me. So insert those words and ask yourself that question. Do I think that God actually likes me? He looks at me and he goes, I like him. I like her. Or accepts you. If you perceive that you're becoming more religious, but your heart for others is shrinking. You're, you're, or put in spiritual for religious, if you don't like that word. I'm, you're, 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 you're gr- I'm growing spiritually. And I go, okay, well, in what sense is your heart for others growing? And you're like, ah, that's not really what, the place I'm growing spiritually right now. Ah! <laughs> that's OBS right there, buddy. If you normally don't have time for other people, you would like to help. Helping is good. Serving others is good. I just don't have any time right now. My kids, I have to get my kids to piano lessons, and I just don't have any time or money for this. If you often feel, I don't want to let that into my life. Somebody should help them, but honestly, I don't want to let that into my life. If you look back at the last six months and just haven't really served anyone selflessly. Look back at the last six months. Who have you, not ended up some program, but you just saw a need, you saw and you just wanted to do something for somebody, and you served them, got nothing from it, right? If one or many of those applies to you in some great percentage, then you might have older brother syndrome. That list is on my blog. If you want to pull it down for yourself, that's just nickwithnokgibson.org. And you can get those, and you can hopefully look at them this week. Fourth is, what is the main difference between older brother syndrome syndrome in Christian faith. And that is this. If you want to get at where older brother syndrome is in your heart, you cannot ask the what question. You have to ask the why question. Okay? So, for example, if you ask a younger brother the what question, are you sinning? What's the the younger brother going to say? Yes, I am. (laughs) Or, yes, I am. Right? The answer is, so, and they go, You go. well, okay, well, that, th- there's the diagnostic. We know that you're a younger brother because you're sinning. Okay, so let's stop that. And, but the main point is let's come to Jesus. Okay, right? Come to Jesus because he forgives sins and he points in a new direction, so come to Jesus. Right? So you can ask the what question for a younger brother. Now, the older brother, you ask him the what question. What's the answer? The answer is no. You go, are you sinning? They go, no. Do, okay. Are you committing adultery? No. Do you work hard? Yep. You steal from your employer? No. Do you pay your taxes? Yes. Do you take care of your family? Uh huh. Do you speed? I go with the flow of traffic. (laughs) You see, the the question you have to ask the older brother is not, and, and when I say the older brother, I mean when you ask yourself this question. You don't ask the question, Am I sinning? You ask the question, Am I an idolater? You have to ask questions about your loves, not your behaviors. So you have to to ask questions, why did I just do that? That thing I just did, why did I just do that? Right? Why did I just do that? Because if we have gospel-centered lives, then there will be a clear difference in our motivations. Gospel-centered life loves to serve God. An older brother life loves to serve God to get stuff or to position himself for gain. A gospel-centered life is saddened by sin. You see somebody sinning, you you know what that's going to do to them. You know how it's affecting them, so you're saddened by it in their life. You're like, oh man, I wish I could help you get out of that. An older brother's angered by it. One of the greatest examples of this in in Western—actually, Eastern literature is um, Dostoevsky's book Crime and Punishment, if you've read it. There's this place where Raskolnikov, who's killed these two women, is talking with this prostitute named Sonia. And Raskolnikov has not admitted he's killed these two women to anybody, but for some reason he feels connected to this woman, and he confesses to her that he has killed two innocent women. One who was a nasty old lady and a miser, but one lady who was looking nice and was her sister was just there, and so he had to kill her because he'd already killed her sister. And you know what Sonia says when he admits he's killed two women? She embraces him. She says, what have you done to yourself? We will know that we are living gospel-focused lives. Here's how. When somebody can kill us and we can say, what have you done to yourself? Who did that? There's this quote from Jesus. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing to themselves. Right? They don't know who they're killing. They don't know what's happening. They think they're doing one thing. They think they're being good moral people, killing somebody who's morally dangerous for their good society because their soldiers—but what's really happening is they are destroying the only good, true, beautiful, honorable, great thing that there even is. And that so moved Stephen later on in Acts. What does Stephen say? While he's getting stoned to death, Father don't hold this sin against them. That's not, that's not an older brother syndrome heart. The older brother syndrome goes, buddy, I have rights. You can't. You can't do this to me. I have freedom of speech. I have whatever. You can't. And I'm not saying it's wrong to play those cards. Paul played that card, right? Remember he said, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't beat me without trial. Ha, ha, ha. You can play those cards. I mean, that's not—but— it's that heart. Paul was ready to be stoned to death and say, Father, forgive them. And so what we, what we end up seeing is that the younger brother, we see that he's an idolater through his sins. We, when we have older brother syndrome, we see that we're idolaters not through our sins, but through our damnable good deeds. That's what Tim Keller calls him. Our damnable good deeds. We do the good, but we do it for such a damnable reason that there's no gospel in it. There's no Jesus in it. We're doing it because that's, that's the track we're on for happiness and so forth. The, uh, there's a great story that was told about this by, by Charles Spurgeon, and you will hear this story a number of times in my tenure. Even if I get fired next week, you'll hear it twice. Um, so I'm just kidding. Um, there's, there's this king. Okay. And the king uh, obviously owns all this land and um, there's a gardener who lives a little ways away from the castle and he takes in his crop one year and he realizes that he has this incredible carrot. Okay. It's, a, it's a carrot but it's like this big, and it's like perfectly like pointed, and you could just throw it at somebody. It just looks like a dart, and it's big, and it's amazing. And so he, he says, I'm gonna, it's the greatest thing I've ever grown. I'm going to give it to the king. So he begs to be let into the king. He wants to give it his a gift, so he gets into the king, and he says, sire, okay, I know this is a carrot, but This is the greatest thing I've ever grown. I've been growing things my whole life, and this is the best thing I've ever grown. And you are a fantastic king, and I love you, and I want you to have this because this is the best thing my life has produced. And so he gives it to the king, and the king receives it, and he says, thank you. And as the guy goes to leave, he says, you know what? He says, I know where you're a gardener, and there's actually a track of land around you that's about five times as big as the plot you farm, and I'm going to give you that land— and servants to till it, because you are a, you're a good gardener, and I want to expand what you do and who you are. And so receive that, that gift from me. And so the gardener goes off rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the court who saw that, and he said to himself, my God, if you can get that for a carrot. And he was a horse breeder, and so he went back to his stables, and there was this horse that was the greatest one they'd ever produced, and it had just been finished being trained and broken in for him. But he realized its value, and so he took it the next day to the king, and he gave it as a gift. And he says, Sorry, um, you're a great king. I've always loved you. You're the fantastic lord of these lands, and I'm a horse breeder, and this is the greatest horse we have ever produced. It's the greatest horse in all the land, and I want to give it to you as a token of my appreciation, because you are such a great king, and I love you. And the king said, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And then he dismissed him. And so the, the guy's leaving, and he's not getting stopped by the king. He's doing kind of one of these, you know? And the, the king says, says, wait a second. And so he turns around and he says, let me, let me explain what just happened. Um, are you puzzled by my response? And the, the guy kind of nods, but he can't really see it. He says, listen, the gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. That's the difference. We give ourselves to Jesus, whether he gives us a martyr's death where we lose everything, our name is publicly destroyed, we're maligned, we're—or whether he gives us billions of dollars and a wonderful family and all kids who turn out fantastic and health and whatever. We give ourselves to Jesus because we are sinners and we were saved by a great God. And then God is generous and he gives us whatever he wants to. And some people he gives enormously great measures of visible blessing. And other people he gives virtually no visible measure of blessing. He just, he, but he gives and he's generous. And that's how this works. We give freely. He, he first gives freely. Then we give freely. And he gives freely. And it's just a bunch of free giving back and forth. And we're entitled to nothing. But we give God the carrot. And who knows what he'll give us? We just know the Bible says God will not be any person's debtor, but who knows how he'll give what, when. The other plan is, I gave you this much, which means you are required to give me this much. Totally different plan. And we can see by that, by how we react to that kind of a story, that kind of dynamic, what's really going on in our hearts. And so what we need What we need is this older brother. We need the older brother, Jesus, to set a new example for what we can be. Um, Remember that when the younger brother came home, he was going to live forever, not just at the expense of the father now, right? For the rest of the younger brother's time at home, he was going to live under the expense of the older brother also. Because the father said, everything I have is yours, right? All that's left of the estate rightfully belongs to you, but we're going to take back the younger brother. We have to celebrate— So this younger brother was going to live forever on the expense of the older brother. That's exactly what you're doing, right? It's exactly what I'm doing. We are going to live forever at the expense of the older brother, Jesus Christ. The Father sent the Son, who was willing and desired to go, to save us, and we will live forever at his expense as the younger brother. Forever at his expense. And that has the ability to transform us into true older brothers. Let me tell you one quick story about this and we'll be done. Um, a week ago, we sang a song um, by a hymn writer named William Cooper, who's on the your right. Now, William Cooper was a classic younger brother in the sense that he was a talented, intelligent guy who came from a good family who could never get his life together. He was just a big failure. That's all he was. And um, the guy on the other side—anybody know who that is? Looks like George Whitfield. It's actually John Newton, the slave trader, former slave trader who became an Anglican minister who wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton took this loser, William Cooper, into his house for more than 12 years. And the reason was because—the um, reason William Cooper was such a loser is because he had what we would consider today clinical depression. He lost—both uh, b- his parents were very young, a number of family members. He was abused at a boarding school. All kinds of—I st- mean, just really messed up young life. And he just—he never, he never cleared it. I wish I could tell you that after Newton loved on him, he got better and he became some traveling preacher. And let- No, he never got better. In fact, the last 10 years of his life, he never darkened the door of a church. John Newton took him in one, one stretch of five months, one stretch of 14 months, where Cooper couldn't get himself out of bed. Couldn't get himself out of bed. Had, had to be attended to. Um, Newton said in the, in the 12 years he lived with me, there was scarcely seven hours of any day that William and I were not together because they had to be together. This is a guy who was a pastor. He had a whole parish to run. He had a family. He had, he had, he had responsibilities, but he had this loser living with him. Finally, when he came out of this 14-month depression where he could actually get himself out of bed and put clothes on, Newton came to me and said, this, William, this is what we're going to do. You and I are each going to write a hymn a week. And he tried to focus William in on the glories of God. He said, he said, if I can get this guy writing a hymn a week that focuses on the glory of God, he will meditate on all that's good, true, glorious, and glorious, lift his spirits. And they did that for weeks. In fact, when they were done, there were more than 200— if, if I remember correctly, there were more than 200 hymns had been written by the two of them. A number of which, written by Cooper, are among the best hymns of the evangelical period. Among the best theologically. We're going to sing one in just a minute. And while we sing it, I want, I want you to think about this question. When we walk away from the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, Jesus is essentially looking at us as older brothers at, in some percentage, right? Even if we're mostly gospel-focused people, at some percentage, that older brother syndrome is always trying to get back a hold of us. Listen, Satan's plan for you is not to suck you back into younger brother syndrome. That is not Satan's plan for you if you're a church-going Christian. He'll get you there eventually. But what he—his plan is older brother syndrome. Because if he older brother syndromes you for long enough, it will tire you out enough that you'll get your midlife crisis. What's midlife crisis? You got tired of being an older brother, so you switched to younger brother. You switch plans. That's all midlife crisis is. Now we do it at 35, but it's still—it's like—we do it like four times now. It's the same basic dynamic. You, you try to be the older brother. It doesn't work. So you emotionally implode, and you get on the younger brother plan. So you get a woman with new boobs and a big car, and off you go. So, Satan's plan is eventually to get you back into younger brother syndrome. But right now, if you're in church and a Christian living a good moral life, his plan is older brother syndrome for you. So, he's speaking to you from Luke 15, and he's saying, How is this going to end? How is this story going to end? You're, if you're the older brother, you've been the younger brother, right? You've been the younger brother. You're in the party. The par- okay, now, second half of the story, now you're the older brother. How is this going to end? Will you accept the Father's pleading? Will you come in and be part of the joy? Will you accept to be part relationally of the family of love rather than on a plan to see what you can get? And will you let that transform you into being yourself the true older brother who goes out to seek redemption for those who are still younger brothers? Will you be like the Newtons of the world and the Stevens of the world and the people who have understood that gospel-centered life and have gone on even the price of their own life? And been the true older brother. In my, in my office, I have a Rembrandt's picture of the prodigal son. Under it, I have a picture of a newspaper that came to Britain from China of the missionaries killed in the first Boxer Rebellion. 56 missionaries, 22 children killed by that first communist revolt. All missionaries and missionary kids. And the reason I have it hung under that picture is because they were the true older, they were the true older brothers. They were the older brothers like Jesus was the older. They went to China to seek out those far from God to bring them home. So let's pray, and then as we sing this hymn, knowing the story behind William Cooper, that it was, it was God used the means of Newton's love for him to bring that younger brother into a place where God could use then him to write some of the greatest hymns of our hymnody. I want—will you make a commitment to fight with all your might the rest of your life by the Spirit's power, creeping older brother syndrome? And will you seek to be renewed that your motivation would be the risen Christ himself and not anything that you could gain from following the risen Christ? What we stand to gain will kill us. Will you make a renewed commitment to Christ and Christ himself and alone as his greatest gift to you? And the only gift worth thinking about, really. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, we pray that as we come to you now, that you'd help renew this in our hearts. That you would free us from older brother syndrome, from the joyless drudgery of motivation through just pride and fear through seeing you as a means to a different end of what we might get, even though those things that we seek to get are wonderful things. And we pray that you'd bring us again to the place where we rejoice not in the Father's inheritance, but in the Father himself. Not in Christ's blessings, but in Christ himself. And that the greatest blessing, even at this moment, we might seek from you, our Father, and Christ our Savior, is You, your very essence in us in the person of your Holy Spirit and the promise of your salvation that we can be related to you and love you and be with you forever. Let our great hope of heaven not be the size of our mansion or the type of our crown, but it be that we will be with God forever. We pray that you'd make this an ongoing work, Father, in Christ's name.